Hey friends, I'm Zen, and you're listening to Currents in Religion, a podcast brought to you by the Department of Religion at Baylor University and by Baylor University Press. Thanks for joining us today. What is the revelatory potential of the corpse? How's that for an opening question? And that is the question that Cody Sanders and Michael Parsons seek to answer in their new book, Corpse Care, Ethics for Tending the Dead, which is out now through Fortress Press. This book surveys the way people have cared for their dead from antiquity up to modern times. It discusses major shifts in death care that occurred in the wake of Europeans arriving in America and after the Civil War, the historical survey shows just how different current American practices for caring for the dead are from the rest of human history. But the historical survey gives way to theological reflection and how American practices might change if we shifted our theological understanding of the corpse. This theological reflection on the corpse could have serious and wide-ranging ethical implications. Listen to this quote. It is the corpse that holds the revelatory potential of decay, but only if we do not turn away from the profound lessons in finitude held in our own bodies, a rotten epiphany revealing the lively nature of our earth-entangled beingness. These are the things we discuss in today's episode. And we are fortunate that both authors of Corpse Care were able to join for this discussion. Reverend Dr. Cody Sanders is pastor to Old Cambridge Baptist Church in Harvard Square and holds various roles at Harvard University, MIT, and Chicago Theological Seminary. Dr. Michael Parsons is professor and Macon Chair in Religion here at Baylor University. As always, if you enjoy this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you'd share it with some people who you think might enjoy it too. Okay, enjoy this conversation with Cody Sanders and Michael Parsons. Reverend Dr. Cody Sanders and Dr. Michael Parsons, thanks for joining us today on Currents and Religion. Thanks so much for having us. Good to be here. Thank you, Zan. So you all have written a fascinating book here. Um, could you tell us just a little bit about the approach to your research? I mean, you, you all didn't just sit down in libraries and read a bunch of books. What, what all did your research entail to produce this book? Well, let me let me start out by just talking about the origins of the, the idea and then how we got into the actual application of it. So I was uh, my wife and I were on research leave in Cambridge uh, at Harvard Divinity School back in 2017. And while there, I participated in the uh, congregational life of the old Cambridge Baptist Church, uh, which Cody is uh, senior pastor. And we got to know each other through the life of the congregation there. And so the last week, I think it was the last week or two when I was uh, there, we had coffee together and I asked Cody what he was working on. And he said, well, I'm working on some work around uh, practical theology of corpse care, which 
captured my attention because I'm interested and have been interested in the perceptions of the body, uh, particularly in antiquity and early Christianity. So one thing led to another. We applied for a Louisville Institute grant, uh, which we received, and we recruited June Hobbs, who's an English professor at Gardner-Webb University, but also uh, somebody who works in cemetery markers and memorial, memorializing um, the dead, and also <clears throat> Rochelle Martin, who is a psychiatric nurse, but also works with home death care. So the four of us um, did some things that I've never done before. Cody may have a different experience, but we uh, we took one summer and went to Conyers, Georgia. We visited Honey Creek Woodlands which is a, at the Monastery of the Holy Spirit, which is a, a conservation burial ground. And then we went from there to uh, <clears throat> Ramsey Creek Preserve in Westminster, South Carolina, which is the first, I believe, the first conservation-level uh, natural burial preserve in the United States. And we got to talk to Dr. Billy Campbell. We met with uh, an interesting character who was a funeral home director there uh, in, in one of our trips. Uh, the next summer we spent in Boston and Cambridge and were given tours of the burying grounds of the Puritans. Uh, we went to the Auburn, Mount Auburn um, Cemetery and uh, burial grounds, which was the first sort of natural landscape, uh, rural garden um, landscape for burials. Uh, and we met with some clergy in that area to talk about uh, some of the practices that surround um, the burial movement. So the, the thing that caught my attention, and Cody can, can jump in here on this too, is the gap that Cody pointed out in terms of the Christian church's response to some of the contemporary issues surrounding the care of the corpse and really the, the ways in which Christians in particular have advocated responsibilities for participating mm -hmm. in corpse care in ways that traditionally up until you know modern times was really the responsibility of the church so that's it was a lot of uh, hands-on uh, sort of um, participation by our group and then Cody and I uh, put this book together Cody has been the the driving force behind it and really done a lot of the heavy lifting so I'll pause there and see what Cody wants to to add to that. Well, you know, one thing is that conversation we had that led to us writing this book happened on the last day you were in town. I remember <laughs> that. Well, I guess that's right. So was... <laughs> we we almost missed it. You know, it was so it was very good to have had that last coffee together. Uh, yeah, the the research was very uh, hands on and in the field, and we um, we talked to a lot of people that enriched our research a lot. Mm -hmm. And for me, I mean, it, you know, this, this topic and, and the, and the research that I've been doing on it started probably, um, you know, maybe in, with some intention in college. I mean, I remember growing up, going to the funeral home in my small Southern town and being very interested in what happens around the time of death. And then at college, uh, working at a funeral home for a little while, uh, having a death class with June Hobbs, who worked with us on this research at Gardner Webb. Uh, so it's been something I've been thinking about a lot. And then as I got more into my own vocation as a pastor and as a pastoral theologian, recognizing the uh, gap that exists between uh, the, all of the good, rich um, training and experience uh, ministers get on how to work with the dying and how to work with those in grief, 
But, but once a body is dead, we have tended to stop thinking about it anymore, stop treating it as important uh, or theological in any sense. Uh, and that really is a, is a shift in how we have treated death uh, throughout history. And it's certainly a pronounced uh, shift from what most of our uh, Muslim and Jewish neighbors would be thinking about and caring for the dead. So I was really interested in how in how Christian clergy and Christian theologians could re-engage this topic as one of theological importance and one of uh, pastoral significance as well. Great. And I think one of the most fascinating aspects of this book is the historical story that you all tell about how corpse care has changed, how care for um, for the recently dead has changed um, from antiquity until modern times. Could you kind of give us an overview of some of the big plot points in that story? Yeah, let, let me start out with that. The, the uh... The book, as you know, Zen, is not long. I mean, it's uh, 50, 55,000 words. And so we we wanted to give a historical background. There are two chapters, basically, that cover the history of corpse care from antiquity and contemporary times. Um, so it's an overview. It's not, mm -hmm. It doesn't go too deep in any one particular area. So we started with the early Christians and their view of corpse care. And uh, we we started with the notion of what what was going on in the larger Roman world. And so mm -hmm. um, there's a little quote in there that sort of summarizes what a good death for a Roman elite would be. And I don't know that the the notions of good death have changed a lot over time. There's still this sure. notion that people want to die uh, with with their loved ones, surrounded by their loved ones um, in the care of, of those of those folks. And that was very typical of, of what we know about Roman elites. Early Christians, were very involved, as far as we can tell, in in the care of their of their dead, in very tactile and personal ways, mm -hmm. and that continues uh, through the med medieval period, where there's a you know a, a focus on uh, caring for the dead, but also the significance of the body and the and the dead body and what certain dead bodies properties that may carry. Um, right. So there, and, you're, there you're referring right to the shift from like the the kind of sacredness of the body as a whole to to the practice of relics, right? Uh, where certain right. properties, you're meaning kind of miracle working properties, and the that's right translation of body parts from one place to another because of those properties, right? That's right. That's right. And um, then there's a shift, and there's I'm going to turn it over to Cody. There's several shifts when when the death waves makes its way to, to the new world and, uh, you know, from the Puritans into the, to the civil mm -hmm. war. So Cody, I'll let you pick it up from there. And the, the, my point is that the history is, is one thing up until fairly modern times. So what we think of as conventional corpse care today is uh, really not what, what was conventional prior to, you know, a little more than a century ago. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, that's where I'll turn it over to Cody to pick up the, the story from that point. Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, in the, the history of death care uh, uh, in the... Uh, in the colonies, you know, we, we talk about the interaction between Native Americans and the early uh, 
colonizers here and the ways that they interacted with one another's death care practices in ways that sometimes weaponized them and it's, and other in other cases became very curious about them for the purposes of evangelizing and things of that nature. Mm. But one of the things that I think is really important to see in this continual shift in our notions of, of what it means to care for the dead is that this picture of a good death and what it means to die well and in the way that one wants to and have one have one's body treated in the way one wishes has often uh, shifted because of some really traumatic break in the ability to have that good death. And we can think about that really close to home in our own uh, last three years of pandemic deaths, where we were separated from loved ones who were dying, where we had no ability to have funerals. Uh, we couldn't gather with family around the um, around the time of death and things of that nature. And those shifts have typically occurred in that kind of traumatic moment when the mm -hmm. good death isn't possible. And the most significant one in the history of the U.S., at least, is in the Civil War. Uh, prior to that, most people didn't die away from home. Uh, prior to that, most people died uh, in a way that their family could surround them and be there on the at, at the deathbed and hear the last words and make meaningful theological significance of that scene. Uh, and in the Civil War, people were dying away from home in the uh, in the in the tens of thousands, you know, and people had to figure out what to do in that situation in order to care for the dead. And what came out of that eventually was this practice of embalming, where uh, you know a group of men who uh, figured out how to make a good uh, living at this followed the troops around, mostly the Union troops, and uh, and would embalm the bodies of those who could afford it, so mostly officers, and send those bodies back home uh, in, in a way that was preserved and that could be returned to their family. Most people didn't receive that kind of treatment because it was very expensive and hard to do, but that practice prior to this would have been unthinkable to people right. to have the, the have the body uh, invasively treated by someone after death like that. Um, but what kind of solidified that in the minds of people as a possibility that they might uh, actually want was when Abraham Lincoln died and was embalmed and was taken uh, across the country and people were able to see him and mourn his loss. So that solidified in some ways this very new practice of embalming in the minds of uh, of Americans at that point. Uh, and out of that comes what we now think of as conventional, mm -hmm. which is embalming a body with carcinogenic chemicals, putting that body in a hardwood or metal casket. And at this point, putting that casket into a, a burial uh, vault or container of cement or metal or something of that sort. And sealing it off from the rest of the, uh, the of the earth, you know, our words of ashes to ashes, dust to dust, is is really purely metaphorical in that in that kind of burial because the right. body is cut cut off from uh, from the possibility of returning to the earth. Uh, so that yeah, those those shifts typically came when there was a a moment when what we were doing was not possible anymore. And that's also what we saw in the shift from city center burials, like in the old, the old burial grounds in Boston mm -hmm. to the rural garden cemetery, places like Mount Auburn. And then those rural garden cemeteries started all over the country and other cities where people were taking their bodies out of the city into the countryside for burial. And at that point, this growing, um, notion of memorialization became attached to the place of burial too. 
the Puritans weren't really interested in creating um, places of memory for their dead. Those burial grounds were places to remind you of death's reality and imminence. But then the shift right. to the Hold rural on. gardens. Can, can we pause yeah. with the Puritans? I, I'm going to yeah, sure. say this. I feel like the Puritans were the most death metal Christians of all. They would put on their gravestones skulls and death's head and uh, these other markers, like you're mentioning, because it was supposed to basically what frighten people into remembering that death was coming, that that, that was their fate. Is that kind of like what what was their theology of death, or or, or why why were and they wouldn't allow. Um, in some cities, right, you mentioned that they wouldn't allow the church bells to be rang uh, in order for people to come and gather for a funeral. What was underlying some of this, if, if you can speak to that for the Puritans? Well, it was the reminder of death's imminence and that that was uh, something that people should be preparing for. So, yeah, the the typical um, engravings on uh, Puritan um gravestones were things like winged death's heads. I mean, they were very, you know, skeletal uh, in, in the early days. They sort of morphed over time into a more cherubic kind of a face with wings. But in the earliest days, they were skulls with wings. Sometimes in, here in Boston, when you go around the old, old burying grounds here, uh, you can see like entire skeletons kind of uh, in repose on the, uh, on the stone, <laughs> things like, um, uh, a uh, an hourglass with the sand running out, uh, engravings like Tempest Fugit, uh, Time Flies, or Memento Mori, Remember Death. Uh, these were supposed to be places that reminded people of their own mortality and their need to be in right relationship with God. Um, they weren't places where people would go to remember their loved ones. Right. Uh, places of visitation, but they were places that everyone would pass by almost mm-hmm. every day because they were in the middle of everything in, in your day-to-day life. And yeah. they were stark reminders of death and they were not beautiful. <laughs> they were very intentionally not be- beautiful in any in any sense. There was probably also a, an anti-Catholic uh, bent to this sort of strip it of, you know, ornate ritual, etc. Mm-hmm. that was, you know, sort of part of Puritan re- reaction to uh, to that part of the Christian life. Right. You know? And you all quote, or maybe summarize, uh, I feel like it was a quote, though, that, that mentioned um, the body being a husk, uh, the corpse as a husk to leave behind. Uh, and, and that, to some degree, does seem to um, still exert a, a level of influence over the way that people even today talk about dying and what they want their loved ones to do with their bodies, right? Like take me out with the trash, I think is one of the kind of uh, idiomatic expressions that people use. So um, in some of the ways that kind of ways people have thought about death, do do you think that the Puritan kind of um, influence is still active? Good question. Uh, You know, I, I think what is, is really different from that is the nearness to death and the mm-hmm. proximity to the dead. I mean, there would be, uh, uh, you know, if the if there was a uh, a dead a dead body uh, in the uh, 
in the church meeting house. Mm -hmm. uh, it would not stop them from having the meetings that they needed to have in the meeting house at that point. I mean, and I, you know, I talk to people in their thirties, forties who've never seen a dead body, right. Who've never, who've never been to a funeral sometimes. Right. Uh, and when they, when they have been to one, they've been to something like a memorial that doesn't have a body present. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, I'm not sure for the Puritans, it was about devaluing the body so mm -hmm. much as it was about using the, uh, the, the time of death as an instructive sure. time for theological, uh, you know, messages to be, to be constructed around that, um, but today there there seems to be just sort of a separation from the bodies of the dead we don't mm -hmm. you know a loved one dies they're ushered off they have direct cremation or they have you know a burial and we don't even necessarily see them right well let's let's end my my sidebar on the death metal puritans you are listening to currents in religion and we are talking with cody sanders and michael parsons authors of the new book corpse care which is out now through fortress press You were talking about uh, how the Civil War and the introduction of the hyper-invasive practice of cremation shifted um, ideas about what was appropriate and right to do with the corpse. Um, but but this also gave rise to an industry. Um, it's obvious that that the method uh, or the work required to embalm a body is a specialized task that not everyone can do with things that they have at home. Um, but the same is true with some of these other practices um, that, that have come to uh, represent normal American death care, um, like, uh, like you mentioned earlier, having um, kind of grave um, barriers or um, tombs basically that are cemented uh, in the ground so that, that, moisture and, and animals and other things can't get to the coffin and all of that. Tell us a little bit more about that development in the, in the 1900s of the kind of funeral industry as we know it today. I think one thing that's important to note as we, as we shift into that industrialization of death is that uh, care for the dead was often uh, early on a, 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 a role of domesticity. It was something that women took the lead in doing many times. Mm -hmm. uh, and most times uh, among the families, it's a family, you know, a family undertaking. Uh, when it became an, uh, a lucrative practice around the Civil War and beyond, it, it became male dominated. Mm -hmm. You know, at first it was people who would do some kinds of services like build coffins or uh, help with the transportation of bodies or something of that sort. And then it became the embalmers who would follow around the troops and make money embalming bodies and sending them back. And now it's a multi-billion dollar industry that is dominated by multinational corporations. Mm -hmm. uh, there are certainly still uh, the majority of funeral homes that you guys are still uh, local family owned funeral homes, but the dominant players in the field of the funeral industry are multinational corporations like Service Corporation International. And uh, yeah, that, that, that has, has 
sort of operated on this logic that there are things that you have to do in death that you cannot do alone. Mm -hmm. uh, and that I think that has been cemented in our collective imaginations that we don't know what to do at the time of death and we need professionals to come and do it for us. But of course, you know, a hundred years ago, no one would have thought that. Uh, we did know what to do at the time of death and we, we right. took care of our own dead. Uh, for most of human history as a communal act. Uh, and still, you know, there there are a lot of misconceptions, I think, among folks today that there, there are legally things that you can't do yourself uh, for the dead. And there are only about nine states, the last I checked, in the U.S. Uh, that that require you to in, involve a licensed funeral director for some aspect of caring mm -hmm. for the dead. That might be transportation, or that might be filing the death care uh, paperwork with the state because the funeral directors are the only ones that have access to the database or something. But that's okay. only in nine states, and that's only a very small se uh, section of things that you might need to employ a funeral director to do. It's still quite legal in every uh, <laughs> way for uh, for families and communities to continue caring for their dead. But there is, of course, the, as always, when, you know, when large profit is involved, um, the production of ideas that we, uh, that we must involve a professional and pay for services that we can't do for ourselves, even if that's not true. It, it seems like there's a combination of misinformation uh, among folk about what is and is not uh, allowable and um, a loss of skills over mm -hmm. time that we don't know how to do what we once did know how to do. Uh, yeah. And that's that's contributed, I think, to the sort of the sense of helplessness in terms of how do I how do I deal with yeah. you know, my mm -hmm. loved one here uh, at the end? Yeah. yeah. And the reality that the funeral industry has lobbyists in every state legislature trying to get laws passed in order to privilege the, the practice of funeral directors, uh, that's also that's also happening everywhere. Yeah. Um, but the, the thing, the church's role in this is that we have also stopped thinking about the body theologically, and we don't have a good sense of how the body is um uh, it, it is important to continue thinking about and practicing care for even in death. So the churches have largely abdicated our very histor historic responsibility for the dead to professionals uh, in the funeral industry as well. Let's go there then. Um, you you all have an underlying conviction in this whole book um, that the corpse is uh, is an object that should be theologically considered. Um, you say that it's got revelatory potential. And this stands in contrast to, I think you mentioned Luke Timothy Johnson and Paul Griffiths, both of whom for various reasons say um, that thinking about a dead body is, is not really a, a theological uh, point of interest or, or necessity. Uh, you disagree. Tell us a little bit about what your theology of the corpse is about. Well, let me start with that, and then Cody can, can jump in. Um, this interest in body theology is not new, right? I mean, uh, we think about what uh, feminists and womanists and uh, more recently disability studies have 
pointed to the importance of what what is sometimes called embodied theology. That mm-hmm. is uh, taking seriously, and and that's in a way I think in the, the <clears throat> feminist movement who talked about this in the '60s and later in womanist theology. The sense, the urgency was dealing with living bodies that were being neglected or abused, uh, but that I think morphed into uh, an intentional decision not to consider the corpse as 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 uh, Luke Johnson in a very wonderful book. Otherwise, says uh, the the corpse is not revelatory anyway. Mm-hmm. And and yes, and you're right. We disagree with that uh, in many respects because we. This split, this Cartesian split between mind and body, has uh, has been influential in lots of different ways. But the but the body does tell us a lot, and what we do with the with the corpse tells us a lot about uh, our community and about the body itself. So uh, we have the phrase "going from humus to human to humus." So we there's the question: Are we except? There's a little uh, section in the book about whether we're exceptional. Are entangled, mm-hmm. and I think what I would think uh, would call a misreading of Scripture that goes back to our understanding of Genesis, where oftentimes we're, we view that as uh, in emboldening and enabling us to have dominion over the, the created order, as opposed to being entangled in it. And we try to make the point that we are part of this web of life, entangled mm-hmm. in it as. As human beings, we are not just a living body or a body. We are composed of uh, bacteria that outnumber the human cells. But I think, Cody, it's 10 to 1 or something like that. So we're uh, we're denying the desirability of the body to return to its natural state, which is the earth. And so we have a section on a kind of theology of dirt or yeah. the relationship between the human and the humus, between uh, humans as creatures uh, belonging to the earth. And so placing a body in a coffin in, encased in, in uh, concrete prohibits that desire from being fulfilled. So, so I really think one of the best contributions of the book is looking at this issue theologically. I mean, the history is important, but people have rehearsed the history of corpse care before. It's the gap that I, I saw that needed to be filled that Cody has been so brilliant about helping to do is with how do we think about the body, the corpse, the dead body, uh, theologically in its place in uh, in our own Christian thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, uh, Tom Long makes this uh, contribution in some of his really great books on on the Christian funeral that all of our liturgical practices are embodied practices. We, you know, our communion and baptism, and they require bodies. And uh, increasingly, our funerals have uh, been absent of bodies. And the uh, piece of it that really is important for me is the way that I think in in death our entanglement in the larger web of life becomes incredibly evident to us. Uh, We know what it means to return our bodies to the earth and for our bodies to become sustenance for other living creatures. Um, And what we have done in our conventional practices of both embalming and flame cremation is uh, is to subvert that process 
And in some ways, it is, it, it, to my mind at least, a, a, an act of human exceptionalism to suggest that among all creatures on the earth that have the uh, the process of birth and life and death and decay and return, we shouldn't have that yeah. process take place, that we should cut ourselves off from the, the wider web of life with this panoply of uh, material that we produce and buy and then have our own, you know, our own little uh, plot in perpetuity or something of that sort. And it has in some ways paralleled, I think, the way that we have been able to um, to, to get around thinking about our our theological contributions to climate uh, climate crisis mm. uh, and other and other forms of uh, kind of human supremacy and things of that nature. So in in returning to a communal practice of death care, where people have uh, proximity to the, the dead, uh, to the bodies of the dead, that in returning to practices that actually return the body to the earth uh, in a way that the earth desires, we uh, have a chance again to almost return to what the Puritans were doing in death, in thinking theologically the lessons that death holds for us, yeah. but a different in a different way than the Puritans did. You know, mm -hmm. uh, our, our our proximity to death and our care for the dead in ways that return it to the earth, in the ways that the earth desires. Uh, can help us to think differently about our relationship to the larger web of life, can help us to subvert our tendencies toward human supremacy over the rest of the web of life, uh, and can become really beautiful practices of memorialization. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to one of these um, conservation green burial grounds that Mike mentioned, like Ramsey Creek or Honey Creek Woodlands. But they're just incredibly beautiful places to be in the midst of the natural world and to, as you're, you know, walking through these these paths, and they're intended for people to visit and to 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 use almost as parks in a similar way that the early uh, uh, rural cemeteries were were used as parks. Uh, you will come across a mound there on the side of the. Uh, on the side of the path with a small, you know, field stone with the name engraved on it. And you'll see these all throughout at different levels of mounding because the older ones have started to kind of sink and return back into the landscape. Uh, and it, it, in some in some ways, I think being there in, in that place uh, or having one's loved ones in that kind of place is um, both a beautiful memorial and a poignant lesson in our own relationship to the, the larger web of life. Yeah. So you all have brought up, I think, a few different, uh, what, would, what would maybe traditionally be thought of as more um, standard theological categories, like the theology of creation, um, how, how we exist as um, entangled in creation as opposed to being exceptional from it. Um, and the, the last thing that I'm hearing you, you mentioned, Cody, is uh, this kind of communal idea, which I think would would relate maybe most closely with ecclesiology, with theologies of the church, um, to some to some extent or another. Um, and one of the other connections that you make in the book is about incarnation, um, about how death itself is not necessarily the undoing of our incarnation, but is actually a, a part of it. And so to position death and the corpse within incarnation, I think, is a really provocative and interesting. Um, uh, yeah, interesting move. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that does? 
Mm, yeah, I mean, I think for I'm just thinking about my uh, my own congregation in that question because my congregation is one that has taken concerns of uh, justice very seriously, and ecological justice is one of those concerns that is uh, always on the minds and hearts of my congregants. And the um, the life of folks who have spent you know, so much time and effort and energy and put their theological convictions into practice around and around ecological justice to then have to do something in death that, that you know, undercuts those commitments in so many ways uh, just has seemed incongruous to folks. And so when folks start, start to imagine other possibilities, which are now well underway, uh, related to green burial and home funeral care and uh, the really burgeoning practice of um, uh, natural organic reduction or human composting now, they start to make connections to their theological convictions and their concerns of justice, but also the ways that they read in the biblical text, uh, the, um, uh, the, the uh, divine creating us from the earth and that the earth being a part of us and, earth, and us being a part of the earth. Mm -hmm. uh, the ways that the writer of Ecclesiastes talks about us as entangled with the larger creation and our fates being uh, bound up with one another in that mm -hmm. way. Um, so I think it is an issue for the church and it's an issue of ecclesiology and it, it sort of completes, if we think about, you know, our care across the life cycle, it really completes that uh, life cycle of care uh, for for the congregation to think about what we're doing from birth, not just to death, but through death into our return to the earth. Mm -hmm. Good. The, and the Apostle Paul uh, speaks to that too in Romans, right? I mean, when he talks about uh, the the creation waiting, you know, and, and longing for our own uh, uh, adoption, redemption of our bodies. So there's mm -hmm. a there are resources in the in the Christian scriptures that have not been uh, fully tapped in terms of, of developing a, a robust notion of what it means to be embodied, uh, including the uh, the dead body. Yeah, yeah. There's work to do still. Um, Cody, you mentioned some of the on the already kind of on their way practices uh, that you that you, that would align with the theology that you're giving here um, practices like green burial uh, could you tell us a little bit more uh, either one of you tell us a little bit more about uh, some of the things that you discovered are being done um, in terms of death care that would be better in alignment with uh, the way that you're reading scripture and thinking theologically about the corpse well, uh, green burial or natural burial will be the first that comes to mind. Uh, it, you know, it, it's what we what we typically see uh, in in most communities and and cultures throughout time. I mean, people returning their dead to the earth in a very natural way, without chemical embalming and without putting things in the earth that are not uh, biodegradable. So, in, in the U.S. now, green burial tip, it, it typically refers to being placed in the earth in a shroud or in a biodegradable container um, with no embalming, uh, no casket, no grave liner, no vault. 
Um, and there are different levels of that taking place. Some of the, that is taking place in conventional cemeteries where there are also sections that are being, you know, buried with mm -hmm. embalmed bodies and caskets and vaults. But then there's this level of natural burial called conservation burial, where the purpose of the practice itself is to conserve attractive land in perpetuity, to preserve it from being developed, or in some, in some instances to rehabilitate a tract of land that has been really damaged mm -hmm. and so in you know in, in in that in that practice i almost see the corpse as being able to continue to be um activist in its in our uh commitments to ecological justice and mm -hmm. sustainability um and again if you look at some of the you know, videos that have been made about green burial. The practice is also very beautiful. It involves the family typically as much as they want to be involved in opening and closing the graves. Uh, it happens in very beautiful wooded areas or prairie lands or whatever the landscape might be. Then the other practices that are emerging now, uh, one is water cremation. So this is as opposed to flame cremation. Uh, flame cremation, as we talk about in the book, is a pretty energy intensive uh, option. I mean, it takes a lot of, um, of uh, fuel to mm -hmm. cremate a body. Water cremation uses a water and alkali solution to uh, wash over the body and basically break down all of the uh, soft tissue and leaves the bones, which are then uh, ground into what we call ash, which is the that that part of it is the same as flame cremation because in the end of flame cremation you're left with bones as well that are ground into ash. The difference is the material that you get at the end of water cremation still retains some nutrients that are good for the earth. Mm -hmm. What you get at the end of flame cremation uh, is really devoid of any nutrients that are good for the earth. It's a very um, so, you know, that it, it, it's a, it's a still, it, it uses about an eighth of the energy of flame, uh, flame cremation. Okay. Um, the other practice that is now just taking off in ways that I, I, I'm really surprised and encouraged by is this colloquially known as, as human composting, but natural organic reduction is the more, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, professional name for it. <laughs> and it is, is basically, um, placing the body into um, um, a kind of cylindrical uh, container with all the kinds of things that you would think about going into compost. Mm -hmm. And then over the process of a couple of uh, weeks, the body breaking down into, um, you know, compost. What we think right. about is being able to take and put in our gardens mm -hmm. and helping things to grow. So it, it sort of does what green burial does, except mm -hmm. in a, an accelerated fashion, which mm -hmm. is really helpful in places where, you know, like where it started in uh, the Seattle area and in places like New York and places all over California where the population density is such that it's really hard to access land for green burial. And this mm -hmm. is a way of, of doing the same kind of thing, but in a process that that has sped up a bit. Right. And so, so these practices are um, also, I think the way that it comes out in the book anyway, they're, they're kind of um, tied in with a, a more broad kind of return of corpse care in general to a domestic activity. Uh, so tell us also a little bit about the way that you're seeing families, community, church communities, um, broader communities, um, kind of reclaiming some of the practice of caring for their dead. 
home funerals are the uh, the other piece of this that are really um, starting to become much more interesting to folks. And I, you know, I have not seen churches become all that interested in this practice okay. yet, which is one of the reasons why this book I think is so important is, is yeah. introducing churches to these practices in a way that's theologically rich mm-hmm. that makes um, what I hope is a compelling case that these are things we should be interested in. Uh, and so home home funerals or communal care of the dead, which I think is maybe a better um, a better way to talk about it when it involves a church, uh, mm-hmm. is uh, is not sending the body to the funeral home after after death to be cared for by a professional, but keeping the body in the home, which can happen for a number of days. Uh, usually, home funerals have you know the body in the home for a day, two, three days or so, um, keeping it cool. And letting the family to come and visit the mm-hmm. body in the home, and 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 also to perform the um, the washing of the body, the preparation of the body, and the clothing that they want to to have. And it, the the beautiful thing about it, when I've talked to folks who have had a lot of experience helping families do this, is that it slows down the process. It lets the family create the pace of this uh of at this activity you're not beholden to the uh, schedule of a funeral home mm-hmm. it allows people across uh, ages to participate in this activity you know children will have their jobs i've seen i've seen uh you know these kind of cardboard burial containers which are biodegradable um decorated by children you know like uh you know drawing and painting on them and things of this nature. Uh, so it, it involves everybody in the process in some meaningful way yeah. and, and slows it down so that folks have the time to, uh, to do that really critical work of, of communal mourning um, at the time of death and in the immediate days afterwards. Now I will say, and I think this is really important that if you want a green burial, that doesn't mean you have to do a home funeral. Right. Uh, and there are people who want to do some parts of the death care, but not all of it. For example, maybe maybe a family wants to keep the body in the home and wants to care for the body and visit the body there, but they they can't fathom moving the body to where it's going to go. So they, you know, I know a funeral director here in town in Cambridge who will do what the parts of it a family doesn't feel like they want to do or are capable of doing. So mm-hmm. uh, something he does for people who do home funerals is sometimes transporting the body afterwards to the place of burial. Sure. So there are there are ways to involve professionals in the pieces that you don't necessarily want to do for yourself. And there is a growing uh, cadre of folks who right now are going by a variety of different names, home funeral guides, um, uh, is kind of the, the emerging standard term. But these are people who will come alongside a family and help them figure out how to do the things that they uh, want to do because mm-hmm. culturally we've kind of forgotten how to do some of these things. So these are folks who are returning the skills to families and communities. Mm-hmm. And I think churches could do this really well by having a small group team committee of folks who who really educate themselves on practices of death care and can help families in the church do that when they, uh, when they need to. Um, I think this is a really good potential for churches to be involved in, in, in resourcing people to do this kind of care. I'll be important to say too, that in, in that last chapter where we overview the different options, we don't necessarily advocate one over another, but, sure. but the point is, 
that we'd like for, for folk, Christian folk, to start thinking more intentionally about how they care for their dead mm-hmm. and and how to be involved in it in ways that are meaningful. Because now it appears, you know, um, you choose between embalming or cremation, and those seem to be the only two options you might have. And neither of those is necessarily, you know, perhaps the best option. And there are different ways at different levels to be involved in the in the care of the corpse that, that uh, Cody has outlined there. But uh, yeah, that's it's important that that those practices be rooted in, you know, maybe a, a deeper and richer understanding of the role of the of the corpse of the, of the think of the Christian saint who's lived his or her life, and then you know what is our responsibility uh, to that person in death uh, as a church or as a family. So. Yeah, thanks for that. Okay, as we wrap up here, Cody, I would just be interested, since you're actively serving uh, in a congregational setting, um, give us an inside look about the way that this research that has been a long a part of your 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 kind of thought life for quite some time, but is kind of uh, coming to a, an expression in this book, a, a level of maturity in this book. Um, how is this shaping your own pastoral care around death in your congregation? Mm-hmm. Whenever I've talked about these uh, these kinds of issues with my congregation and with other congregations and some of my denominational bodies as well, um, there has been just really intense interest. I recall, you know, a couple of workshops I did at the, at the Alliance of Baptists a couple few years ago that were standing room only. People really want to be able to talk about this, but there are so few places to talk about this. Uh, so at, one of the pastoral things that it does to present some of these options about death care is just to be just to set the table for folks to be able to come around uh, in a, commun- a communal way and talk about death. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, that, that alone, I think is an important pastoral, um, a piece of this. It has also really helped my congregation to connect some of their, you know, uh, environmental ethical commitments to the care of the dead, which has been important for them. Um, and you know, it, uh, it, it more intimately involves people in some really important parts of, of, of life mm-hmm. with one another, um, I, I I get to visit folks and uh, and attend to folks who are who are dying, um, but not everybody in the congregation is necessarily doing that with with one another. But when we can come around the table and talk about you know what how we want our bodies treated and who we want to be involved in that process and what it means to us, it builds the communal capacity to really be present with one another in uh, a really important time in life uh, at the point of, of death. Great. Uh, Cody, Mike, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. This is a great conversation. Thanks for having us. Corpse care tackles an important topic, and I think theologians training pastors ought to have a look at it. You can get a copy now through Fortress Press. Thanks again to Cody Sanders and Michael Parsons for taking time to talk with us about it here on Currents. Now, I'm going to hand things over to Dave Nelson, director of Baylor University Press, to introduce you to a Baylor Press author and their work. You're listening to The Elevator Speech, an occasional feature of Currents in Religion, a Baylor Religion Department and Baylor University Press podcast. 
I'm your host, Dave Nelson, Director of Baylor University Press. Today on The Elevator Speech, we're joined by Dr. Natalia A. Cherry, Assistant Professor in Methodist Studies and Theology at Bright Divinity School, and also author of Believing into Christ, Relational Faith and Human Flourishing, released last fall from Baylor University Press. Natalia, thanks for being with us today. What's your elevator speech for Believing into Christ? What's the big idea? Thanks for having me today, Dave. I appreciate that question so much. The big idea behind believing into Christ is that I'm calling for a restoration of an admittedly awkward uh, phrase, believing into Christ and the concept that it entails in a way to restore a relational instead of a propositional sense of belief whenever we talk about uh, Christian faith. I argue that this will enable a flourishing praxis, as I call it, a more vital and vibrant practice of the Christian faith that we often think of in terms of super saints and the deepest disciples, but not everyday Christians. And instead, by reaching back to this little formula that Augustine established in his preaching, mostly on the Gospel of John, but also in some other commentaries like that on the Psalms, um, that strikes a contrast between just believing as what I call a bobble-headed nod of assent to, for example, the existence of God or that Jesus is who he says he is, the son of God. Um, there's a difference between that and also between uh, the concept of believing God, believing Christ, that what Jesus says happens, that what God promises comes true. Those are both important, but there's a difference between them and believing into Christ, which Augustine says, by believing you love, by believing to cherish Christ and to go into him and be incorporated in his members. This language makes no sense. It's actually unique in the Latin of the Vetus Latina and the Vulgate to Christian literature and the Bible. That's it. Uh, it's a pairing of what was often considered and still is today, I argue, a cognitive verb to believe with a construction of a preposition in the case of its object uh, that makes it into, and usually that goes with a verb of motion. Like I walk into the building, we go into the church sanctuary, for example, or as I point out, we go into the baptismal waters. So with that concept, Augustine is saying, what is going on here? This is unique, this is special. How is this different? And he has so many wonderful ways across uh, several different sources of pointing out the difference that it makes. That not only are we going into in this very fleshly bodily language, Christ, uh, but also in some way he says, Christ comes into us and we are made one with him. I pick up on some of his writings elsewhere to talk about how in baptism, Jesus applies the Holy Spirit like glue to glue us to God. And so when you wrap up all of this language together, you get this wonderful image of um, the gluing to Christ's limbs that all who would believe into Christ experience so that no matter how much we might be tempted to pull away from Christ or turn inward on ourselves instead of outward in the way that Christ always turns, we are instead automatically moving in the directions that Christ's hands and feet always have, in the direction of the margins, in the direction of the outcast, 
and that we are also simultaneously, and here may be the trickiest part, glued to Christ together, which means in a way we're glued to one another so that whether someone else's flesh is living and walking and loving uh, and acting like mine or not, I'm going to cherish it. I'm going to be dedicated to its protection equally as much as my own. And that in that action, I, I'm challenged, but I'm also empowered to overcome the divisions among those of us who call ourselves the body of Christ. That then together we look at the ways in which we have been othering those who are not believers into Christ, as well as some who would be, but feel that they have been outcast from the body. Uh, but that in so doing, we overcome our own prejudices and we look for ways to transform the practices of Christian faith into a more bodily and moving experience. And I talk uh, after pointing out all of the Latin early on, and I encourage my readers often to just skim the Latin parts. There's translation there for a reason, um, but that the, the book is organized in such a way that you can understand it without understanding the Latin necessarily. And then we trace how from Augustine's preaching through the Venerable Bede and Peter Lombard, uh, there's an established formula contrasting believing God, believing in a God, and believing into God. And that over time, it gets intellectualized, it gets separated from its bodily language, from its love language, and becomes more of an intellectual ascent to propositions. And so once I've traced the loss in translation right up to the present day, and glimmers of hope and interest in something like this without people having had access to it because of its loss in translation, that there's a possibility now more than ever in a time when people want to make a difference, when we begin to recognize harms perpetrated by the church, right? That this can be an ancient theologically rooted resource readily available that automatically carries a, in a compact form, a sense of difference that can be made with little adjustments that can make a big impact in the long term toward healing, toward reparations. Uh, so I, I trained the lens on uh, scripture to understand what was Augustine talking about and how could we talk about it today. I tip a hat to several, I call them theologians of flourishing, who in the past 50 years or so, and many still today, um, are doing the kind of relational understanding of belief, but now could use this tool to get their point across even more. And that looking at all of their good work together with this long tradition, uh, we can help people in congregations, in seminaries, and in everyday conversation with people of other faiths and no faith in particular to understand the practices of faith from catechesis and teaching and creeds to baptism and Eucharist or Holy Communion and so on and so forth to be themselves things we don't get rid of. We retain them, but they are transformed in a way that they are directly connected to what happens when we exit the sanctuary because we are going out the doors still believing into Christ. Mm. Wonderful. It's an exciting book. Thank you, Natalia, for being with us today and sharing your elevator speech with us. My pleasure, Dave. Thank you. You've been listening to The Elevator Speech, an occasional feature of Currents in Religion, 
a Baylor Religion Department and Baylor University Press podcast. I'm Dave Nelson, Director of Baylor University Press, and my guest today has been Natalia A. Cherry, author of Believing into Christ, Relational Faith and Human Flourishing, now available from Baylor University Press. Well, friends, that does it for this episode. Thanks for making Currents and Religion a part of your day. If you enjoyed this episode, do share it with someone you think might find it interesting too. Leave us a rating so we know how we're doing and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Until next week, thanks for listening. Take care.